Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Cash Rules with Nick Gilmore. My name is Nick Foley, and I'm the host of the show, and I'm really, really excited to be in your presence today. We've had a lots and lots of feedback on last week's episode, and uh, yeah, we're excited to continue on. So how you doing, Nick? How you doing? Good, man. How about you? Pretty good. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I didn't give the man the myth, the legend introduction, so I feel a little bit uh, off by saying that. But uh, I think our listeners always know who, uh, you know, who you are and what you're about. And, and uh, that's why they keep coming back every week. And we're grateful for them. So I just want to give a shout out to the listeners and, uh, you know, and the good content, the great content, I'm hoping uh, we're, we're, we're providing on a weekly basis about, um, you know, entrepreneurship, real estate investment, business, and, uh, you know, all things that go with that. So I'm excited to get into today's episode. How about yourself? Yeah, it was pretty... Uh... I mean, like the feedback we got on last week's episode was crazy. So everybody loved the question answer. Um, one of the questions we had post episode actually uh, that I can't believe we haven't touched on yet is more of your background. So obviously people know, um, you know, we know each other by now, but uh, I think it might be interesting for you to touch on just real quick you know, your background, what you do, where you come from, and give the listeners kind of a 30,000 foot view of Nick Foley. All right. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good, you know, it's a good point. So shout out to the listener that was like, who the hell is this guy asking Nick questions? <laughs> you know, because uh, we, we, we didn't, we, we, we are detailed people, but uh, we just kind of jumped into it. So I am a uh, professor at uh, Loyalist College and uh, I teach in public relations and event management and, and uh, really, really excited about that. Um, I'm just getting into the real estate game. I, uh, real estate investor and, uh, entrepreneur, um, several years ago, I started a nonprofit called move for inclusion, which we provide different types of scholarships for kids living with different types of exceptionalities. And it brought me on a, on a journey, uh, to about inclusion and acceptance of all people without bias. 2015, I, I cycled across Canada to raise awareness about inclusion and, uh, yeah, and I'm just uh, really excited. I, I talk, do keynotes and workshops about efficiency and about uh, getting the most out of your day by, by really leaning into your morning and your daily and, uh, and your nightly routines. And, uh, yeah, I derive systems about how to measure your success for your day. I know that you and I talk about it. Actually, we hold each other pretty accountable for the uh, cornerstone principle systems that mm -hmm. uh, we, we talk about. And we'll perhaps talk about that later in the episode. So I do a lot of different things, man. Just really excited to be a part of this podcast. You and I have known each other for quite some time, but have really, you know, been friends here over the last little while. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I look for your business savvy and your expertise in a lot of things. And I know uh, we go back and forth and just try to try to better each other the best that we can for not only ourselves, but each other and also our families, which is uh, most important. I think we put uh, above and beyond anything else that we do our business for. Because at the end of the day, Nick, I think that's one of the things that I like to to go is, is the reason why I'm doing this podcast, the reason why, you know, I'm in business, the reason why I know you're in business is because we want to, you know, provide value and, and be of service to others. But in doing that, we want to make sure that our why is consistent. And in both cases, it's uh, providing for our families and setting them up for the most success that they can have moving forward. So, that's a little bit of a, I guess, a one-minute intro of what I'm about. And I think over the next couple of uh, episodes, several years, hopefully we'll be doing this. I don't know. Uh, maybe we will. Um, and, you know, hopefully the audience will get to understanding of what I'm about and who I am. Who I am. But just, just here to be of value and of service. Just want to ask some questions so that our audience gets a good understanding of, uh, you know, a lot of, the input, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on a weekly basis, my man. You're a pretty humble dude, too. So I know that that was like a... 
like you said, it was a one minute intro. There's a there's a lot of substance that's behind that uh, this guy, and and everybody's going to get to know him pretty well as as we move forward. But uh, super genuine ind- individual, and I'm pretty stoked to be able to uh, be working with him on a weekly basis. Well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, it was awkward as hell for me to say that. So I, I'm going <laughs> to, but you know, I think that's the thing that makes us work, right? Nick was that we try to be as authentic as we can, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit, you know, and sometimes we're vulnerable. Um, we get a lot of uh, customer, and let's bring it back to the episode here. We get a lot of, not customer, but we get a lot of feedback from our audience members, which is really engaging, which is so great. And this is a testament to who you are as a business person and as an individual to build that audience up in, in a relatively short period of time. And so I think with uh, with an extension of what we talked about last week, we're going to continue to talk about it this week. And we're going to take some audience questions, or audience, I keep exactly what they are our listener questions our audience questions are not here with us although that would be a fun show something to do in the future perhaps <laughs> um but yeah we'll take some audience questions and our uh, listener questions and kind of go from there if that sounds good for you you want to get into it let's do it all right man so i'm excited by this i think it's going to be a um i think it's gonna be a fun episode we we Nick put it out uh there last week for some great uh great questions and we took got some really really great questions from it from all of you i'm saying questions a lot so i'll stop with that uh, however, um, today we, we put it out again because we thought it was a great episode. There's some things that we were going to talk about, talking about, um, you know, our habits and, and our grassroots approach and, and different things like that. But we want to get to our questions first and, and, and then work our, our mindset uh, into it. So I'll ask uh, Nick, you want to ask the first question? So this one came in from uh, somebody I'm pretty familiar, familiar with, and it's a, I would say, hugely successful business uh, individual from our area and it's about business clusters. So why, what are they and why they're important for businesses? So I don't, you touch on this one. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. Uh, that's a really great question and I'm familiar with the, the gentleman that did that. So, or that asked it and he's, yeah, like you said, he's got his, um, it's got his finger on the pulse when it comes to business and entrepreneurship and, and growth. So, so clusters are basically, uh, well, actually I'll, I'll, I'm, a, I'm an academic guy, so I, I, I like the education and learning. So um, it was actually uh, derived from a guy named Michael Porter from Harvard. And uh, he started doing um, he started doing a deep dive into what drives industry and business in localities. And so what he came upon and upon his research, years and years and years of studying, uh, came upon is that clusters are uh, geographic concentrations of interconnected businesses. Right. So let me say that again. Clusters are geographical concentrations of interconnected businesses that kind of run parallel hand in hand to each other. Not only is it do they do they drive people to the to the, the community into that area, but they also they compete in a, in a good way because they drive, you know, they, they drive volume, they drive money, dollars into the uh, community. So that's the kind of the the, the the high bar definition. Let me give you an example for our listeners, Nick, so that they can understand a little bit what, more what we mean. So we're from Ontario. We make no bones about it. We're uh, born in uh, born and raised and born and bred in Belleville, Ontario. Um, you live in Kingston. I live in Belleville. And one of the things that we have in common is in this area is Prince Edward County. Very familiar, right? You a wine guy? Never asked you that. You a wine drinker? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, oh boy, I know my, I know I am. So, so take for example Prince Edward County. This is an example of uh, this is an example of clusters working at its finest. And here's here's what I mean by that. So a cluster is like I said, a group of competing businesses or a group of businesses in an industry like that's competing, not necessarily one siloed industry, but all sorts of industries coming together. So we have all kinds of wineries in in 
uh, in Prince Edward County. So what does the wineries do? Well, it provides jobs. How? Well, they're growing grapes. They're they're bottling wine. They're they're making the wine. They're harvesting on a on a yearly consistent basis, and they're 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 providing jobs into our our community. Well, also because our, our landscape is so great, what else is happening? Well, tourism is coming in. And so businesses are starting to realize that and they're providing services, small boutique hotels, big hotels, all working interconnected together to provide a, a flourishing uh, economy in, in a, a concentrated area. So I'll give you an example, what uh, a cluster in the mainstream macro condition that our listeners would understand. So if you were in London, that's called a, uh, a London, England, that would be an economic cluster. Why? Because there's all kinds of economic kind of, uh, you know, economic happenings that are going on a consistent basis that are driving people to the place, to that one area. So um, in, in, in our example, that what I used uh, macroly is, is London. So it's a big, huge driver of economic industry. And what's happening is it's got a good infrastructure, it's got a good quality of life, and people are gravitating towards it. Another good example of uh, clusters would be Silicon Valley, right? Making computer chips and different things like that. And so other businesses are coming up and they're helping distribute the computer chips. And they're also, we all know with Silicon Valley, you know, uh, social media platforms, all different types of technology platforms, Apple and, 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 and different things like that. Shout out to Apple, but shout out to anybody that has technology that are making these kind of things. And it's all driving business and economics into one driving area. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I guess like it would almost be similar to, you know, the Nashville uh, country music kind of uh, comparison, but modern day. Yeah, well, absolutely. Right. So in Nashville, you look at that, you look at it right now. And this is a great question. I didn't know you're going to ask. So that's a really good question, because what happens with with Nashville, it's like it's driving industry. There's tourism, but there's also the music industry. There's also people manufacturing. I, I, I bet you that you would see people in Nashville that within a radius of about 20 miles, 20 kilometer, whatever it is, are in are manufacturing guitars. Right. There are people manufacturing guitars. There are woodworkers that are that are designing the guitars. There are people that are taking the guitars and shipping them to the, you know, the people. It's my band-aid my kid gave me this morning. I don't even have a cut. Um, and so they're but they're shipping into uh, you know, country stars, rock stars, people like that. And it drives tourism. So there's lots of boutique hotels, there's lots of hotels. Another great example of it, and here's something that our listeners may or may not know. You I'm gonna ask you, Nick, and I know you you might know the I'm not sure. I'm putting you on the spot here. What is the biggest where is the biggest production of carpet in the world? Right? <laughs> I know. I just love this stuff. But here's the biggest percentage of carpet in the world is Georgia. Right? Georgia. And why is that? Okay. So 90%, 18 of the 35 biggest manufacturing carpet places or companies in the world come from the state of Georgia. Right? So Georgia is really close to different places like Tennessee and things like that, which is Chattanooga. It was a huge technological hub. And it all kind of works within a, a radius of each other where manufacturing, you're having mills, you're having um, uh, different types of services that, that needed to be like people on machines that are manufacturing the machines, people that, like I said, shipping and all these different types of, of things that have to happen that are happening because the industry in, in the carpet industry is so big. And like I said, in, in manufactured or uh, concentrated on this one geographical area, I mean, obviously there's other carpet industry or carpet companies around the world, but in this one geographical area. So it's driving jobs. When people want to come to jobs, when what's going to happen? You're going to have good infrastructure. You're going to have, you know, good quality of life. And it's going to allow more people to come and, you know, experience everything that that state has to offer and surrounding state as well because different types of technology has to occur in order to run the machines that make the carpet that 
carpet comes from the yarn. So you have to have mills and you have to have people that are able to, you know, propagate that in the mills and, and different things of that nature. So these are all just kind of uh, examples of different types of clusters, not only, uh, you know, locally in, in the county and different areas in, in our area, and also, also you know, bigger examples with, uh, with Georgia and, and London. And so, so clusters are, are, are driving force to industry in the communities, in the city. So what happens when, let's say, let's take your example that you just gave with Georgia and with the carpet industry. That is so driven by one thing, right? It's got, you've got one lane. Yeah. So what happens if there's a blip in that market? Detroit. Everyone's probably like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. Detroit's a beautiful city and we know that. And all our Detroit listeners, what's up? Hey, we love you. Here's the thing that we have to understand. In the early millennium, right? In the early 2000s, as you know this, the industry for cars, manufacturing for cars plummeted, right? And because of that, right? The, all the things that were driving the industry in, in the, the, in the car manufacturing industry in Detroit were like, everything was going really well. And then when that plummeted, when all these things dissipated, when, when, the, when the, uh, when the companies and the manufacturing companies, it wasn't, it wasn't working anymore. Nobody was buying cars in the plummet. It just, it went through the, the floor. Well, all the rest of it followed suit, right? People started going there. People didn't have to work there anymore. So there was not as much, uh, not as much money was coming through. And then because there was not as much money is coming through, then they weren't getting the services from the government. See, the thing is, the reality of it is, is you need municipal government, you need your federal government, your state, your provincial government, and you need local industry to be all working sim in, in symmetry to provide what a successful cluster is. In that case, right, when it was one, one driven, like it was, you know, two or three big companies that were in one concentrated place, the reality of it is, is when that whole industry went for a, you know, down the tubes, then everything else slowly followed suit, right? So now, you know, the manufacturing company, they're starting to come back, but once you lose, you know, a very successful cluster over time, then it takes a longer time to build back up, right? So ideally, what you want is you want to have these other companies that are thriving. Now to get back to what you said about the, yes, Georgia, in that case, when it comes to the carpet, it's very one-sided, but here's the thing that there's lots of different companies that are making the tools that they need that are going in different directions, right? That are not just concentrated on that one area. So they'll have a little bit more of a, uh, they're, they're a little bit, they have a little bit more of a, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit more of a diverse uh, um, ideal or background type thing because they have all this industry that they've been, you know, building up for quite some time. And, but they're also able to ship in different different areas and do different things that bring people and jobs to the the community. So that's a really good question. So now, you know, Detroit and shout out to our our, our listeners from them. You know, they're building themselves back up. It's taking time, but it's uh, they'll get there because we know those people and they're gritty and they're awesome, right? As we know, relentless. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's it. I think that's a good um, you know a, a good little spot. I mean, I introduced myself. This is the most I've talked on our podcast from the beginning. So I just love this kind of stuff. I think clusters, like I said, it uh, it drives um, it drives business. It's geographical concentrations of industry and uh, interconnected companies. And this is my jam. I like uh, like learning about all this stuff. So good question. I couldn't hear what you said. Siri just went off on me. I don't know if you caught that. Anybody see that? <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to get to some more questions here and I'm going to, I'm going to throw it back to you, Nick, because uh, I know you're comfortable in the, in the captain's chair here. So can you talk about mental health and the importance of good practices for busy people and how to navigate through roadblocks? And if uh, do you have any resources, find resources. So something I always say, you need to get your mind right before you can do anything else. 
And that's a very blunt way and a very uh, ignorant way to kind of say it, but it's direct. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm very direct. But getting your mind right means being healthy, having a healthy mindset, understanding yourself, understanding what you need and the people around you, what they need in order for you to be able to fire on all cylinders. So the importance of mental health, I mean, with everything that's going on in the world and all the different factors that play into our daily life is so important because, you know, and we kind of ended the episode last week on this point. If you're not, if you're not showing up and if you're not showing up a hundred percent for yourself and you're not keeping yourself healthy and looking after you, then you can't look after everybody around you. So importance of mental health is one of the most important things in business. Number one, how busy people navigate it. That's a tough question because I'm not a professional at that. And I've struggled with being able to navigate my own mental health because I'm always, my philosophy is build, 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 work, 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 get crazy. And it's worked for me. So it's hard for me to falter that mentality of all in all the time because it's been, it's always worked and it's always been something that, you know, I can't, if it, if it's not broke, why fix it? But I think, you know, as the years go by and as I have more time in this game and this, on this board game of entrepreneurship, And, you know, I understand the longevity and how you, you are really able to be a longtime player in this game is by keeping it right up here. And if, if you, if you look after your mental health, um, you know, you look after yourself, then, then everything else is, is going to fall into place. Roadblocks, find resources. I mean, consistency, routine. Um, you know, having different things, meditation. I'm huge on that yoga. I love yoga, uh, working out these different outlets, um, for frustrations and outlets for reflection are super important in business, super important in personal, uh, life to kind of keep you on track. And that would be my advice. But like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm far from a professional about it and it's more in your wheelhouse than anything. Well, and I appreciate you throwing that at me, Nick. And I think that's, and again, one of the things that I want to, our, you know, and I think our listeners know is that you are um, honest and authentic. And that's why you have, we have such a great um, listenership uh, and, and, and loyal, loyal listeners, which is so, which is so refreshing. I do know a little bit about this and I will, if you don't mind, I, I think I will say a few words about it and, and, and hopefully give some insight to this person who asked, who I know is a very uh, busy person and, and a business owner uh, themselves. And, um, doing a lot of a lot of good. So when I talked about at the beginning of our show, when I talked about cycling across the country, everything went well. You know, 8,321 kilometers. We raised a bunch of money. We did a bunch of good. We raised a lot of awareness as well. The problem I had was for 18 months of preparation and three months on the road, I was solely driven on one one thing, raise awareness and get across safely so that I can see my family again. When I came back, everything went to hell. And, and that's, that's the absolute, that's the absolute truth. I was awful to live with. I was, 
Um, I was on the verge of a mental and physical breakdown. I, I, I really didn't know how to get myself out of it. And so after about 10 months of wallowing in my own self-pity and recognizing the writing on the wall that I was going to lose everything. I was going to lose my family, which is the most important thing in my life. I was going to lose my partner, my wife, my partnership. I, I just, I needed to figure it out. And so I came across a article that I read online that said that you need to get intentional in the morning. So here's the tip for the person and, and everybody listening. Get intentional in the morning. I don't subscribe to the notion that you have to get up at like <clears throat> five in the morning or three in the morning or whenever you do. I'm an early riser, but I go to bed early, right? What I am a subscriber to is that when you get up, you have to be intentional. And so I got up in the morning on the first day and I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, I'm going to work out for 20 minutes. So I ran down to the end of the road and back, took me 20 minutes to do. This article said 20 minutes of exercise, 20 minutes of reading and 20 minutes of like intentional journey, journaling. So I went down and after I, I, I said I was going to do that, I did that. Sorry, something in my throat. Next thing is I went down, I read a book, I got a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and I started to read for 20 minutes. After that, I just started a freelance journal, just writing down things that I'm grateful for. With time, I started to feel better. And the reason being, Nick, is because I started to get more intentional with my life and more intentional with my day. And now, five years later, after starting that, this is what I do, is try to help people in as many capacities as I possibly can. You and I, I know, uh, we, we actually go a little deeper. I've got a program called The Cornerstone Principles in my life of cadence. And what do we do is we measure the things that we want to measure, the principles we want to measure. And I'm a big believer in, you know, what gets measured gets improved. And so for those that are listening, what I would do is I would give yourself a little bit of grace. And the grace is this. If you're feeling like doing something great, and if you're not, then listen to your mental health. Listen to your body. Listen to the, you know, all the things out there that are telling you you need to slow down. I got a question the other day on a podcast as I was a guest of the show. This was a little while back. And they asked me, like, you're an early riser. What if you sleep in? I responded simply with, then I sleep in, right? And, and, that, and I allow myself the grace to do that. So I think we're really hard on ourselves as entrepreneurs because we have to get this, this, this done. But sometimes you just need to take, take a break. So the big thing that I would say to our listeners is, you know, um, take a break from time to time. You know, roadblocks don't necessarily mean they're, they're, they're complete stop signs. They just mean that you need to rethink the way that you're approaching your, your life and your business and just kind of look at different angles and reach out to people, right? So I, I've i got a uh, website or not a web, uh, my email. I think it was up there. So we'll put that back up. Nick Foley speaks at gmail.com. This is what I do is one of the things that I, that I concentrate a lot of time on is helping people be as a, most efficient as they possibly can. Nick, you and I have done this kind of program together, right? We, we've got a program that, that you wanted some, um, some not necessarily help with, but wanted to go back and forth with, and, and uh, we hold each other accountable. So my thought is if you have any questions for me, send a message to Nick Foley speaks at gmail.com. And on behalf of the show, I'll have no problems getting back to you. Just say that you're a listener and I'll know exactly where it's coming from. And I'll answer any questions that you need that I know that I may know the answer to and I'll provide any kind of resources that you uh, you may have uh, going that you may have that's going to help you. But the first thing that I would say to you is get intentional in the morning. And I would also say that, you know, movement helps me. Meditation, like Nick said, helps me. Uh, drinking lots of water helps me. Um, and I would also say that making sure that I am very intentional with my whatever my aspirations are in business. My application 
is what I'm doing every day is my application on how I'm going to get there. And if I have an aspiration of I want to drive money and like I want to, you know, I, I want to have a solid first quarter, then making sure that my application uh, aligns with my aspiration on a consistent basis. That all said, allow yourself some grace. And, and you know, we're all human, right? And I know, Nick, you've got that notion of like work, 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 and you are a warrior when it comes to that. You know, I try to work as hard as I can as well. But the reality of it is that I also have two little kids that are, you know, under 10 years old. So they take my time. You know, and I think it's kind of one of those things where, you know, if you would allow yourself a little grace and you're intentional with your time, then the rest will take care of itself. So look me up, Nick Foley speaks at gmail.com. Tell me that you're a listener. I'll know where it came from and I'll help you with any kind of resources that I have. Cause I mean, I've given you some resources, Nick. I know you mentioned, um, you know, with the cornerstone principles and the different things that you measure on a consistent basis to help you be a better, you know, person for yourself, for your business, for your partner, um, you know, for your wife and that. So like, this stuff is what we can really it's huge into. It's huge, man. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. How do you navigate getting mortgages and loans without mm -hmm. having a T4 while working your small business? This is a really great question. Go ahead, Nick. That's, uh, again, kind of going back to what we talked about last week. Um, if you don't have a T4 or T1 general, um, or T2 in terms of like dividends and you're not showing any income is what I'm gathering from this question. Then how do you navigate getting a mortgage? Well, you need to go to other lenders. So there's something called stated income. And if you're making money, okay. So you're making money from different avenues, but you're not, you're not showing it on paper perhaps yet or it, it hasn't been a full year, then you can use what's called stated income. So you tell them, I'm paying myself $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 a week, whatever it is. And you show them the transfers going from your, your bank account, your business bank to your into your personal bank or whatever. You show them a kind of a, a series of consistent transfers that are happening so that it proves, yes, that is in fact how you're you're getting paid and b c lenders probably more c c lenders and uh private guys will look at look at you and and they'll get you some type of a mortgage to get you into the game the terms around that mortgage will probably uh look something like uh one year fixed interest rate maybe 8 to 10 11% um and then there's going to be lenders fees uh, tacked onto that as well. That being said, it sounds expensive, but it gets you in the game, you know, and this is all the, it's all numbers. And if it works out and the, the money coming in is greater than the money going out, uh, then you're winning. So, you know, don't worry about the little fees and then the cost of doing business here and there, because I mean, that's, that's typical. You're going to pay a little more, but that's the price of the game. Question for you, though. You said something that, um, you know, you're winning with money coming in, money going out. But talk a little bit about appreciation in the long-term game. Because I feel like so a lot of people are just like, they're stuck on that term, right? What's the term that you and I talk about? It We talked about it yesterday. Mailbox money. Oh, I just want mailbox money. And I understand that. I get that. But talk a little bit, Nick, about the importance of understanding the long-term game when it comes to getting mortgages as a real... And I'm guessing that they're probably... 
talking about themselves personally, perhaps, but maybe for people that are listening, they're like, Hey, I want to get into the, uh, I want to get into the investment property game. It's kind of the same, you know, it's the same mindset or the same mentality when it comes to getting the mortgage, especially if you're working a business for yourself, talk a little bit about the importance of appreciation and seeing the long term about that and not concerning yourself with money in money out. So here's the thing that everybody gets fucked up on. They expect and they think that the second you invest in something or the second you buy a rental property or the second you start a business, our, our age group, you know, the younger generations, they think I'm going to start making money. And the reality of it is that it couldn't be farther from the truth. And in fact, it's the exact opposite because most times, okay, most times, you're actually bleeding money into the business or the investment or whatever, the real estate to, to keep it floating because you know, these things, they're not easy. You don't just jump. If, if, if I love the saying, if it was easy, everyone would do it because it's so fucking true. And yes, investments are great. So to answer your question, the appreciation on it, that's, that's the gravy in the, the whole the whole investment because yes, you're having somebody else pay it down. If it's a rental property and they're paying you rent and you're putting it against mortgage and maybe you're covering a few extra expenses here and there, but over the course of 25 years, okay, not only is that mortgage getting paid down, but the value of the property is going up. Will it go like this up, down, up, down over the years? Of course it would. And and it's going to, but a mentor of mine gave me, and I've said this to you before. He said he gave me a chart that detailed the stock market. Okay, or the I can't remember exactly like TSX Composite Index or whatever the hell it was. But it was the the moral of the story was it was like back to the eighties to when I got it was like two thousand and fifteen. And he's like, okay, I want you to focus on the years 85 to 90, okay? And it was like, I'm like, okay. And then he's like, so now broaden the, the, the spectrum. Look, look, look at a longer period of time, okay? So it went down, okay, it came up a bit. Okay, now extend the period of time, extend the period of time. And what you notice that from the point we started and from today – how much it had gone up. And this is what you need to focus on. And what I always preach, it's play the long game. I'm not saying there's no short game. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if you're a traditional investor and if you're somebody who wants to do this and wants to do it well, nine times out of 10, you need to play the long game and there's very few short opportunities that are going to pay off in my experience. And, you know, you just got to look at the appreciation and look at uh, paying off your, your initial capital investment, pay off the, the mortgage against or your margin or whatever game you're playing and, you know, be consistent. So my question, that's a great answer, Nick. So my question for you then is, and I know you get this question a lot from people is what would you say? People are saying that, you know, the price for houses is, is, is extraordinarily high. What would you say about people saying, well, do I get into the market now or do I wait? It's always a good time to buy. So I say this 15 times a day. 
could people always ask, should I wait? Should I buy? Is it, you know, I'm, I don't want to buy at the top. Well, you know, if you want to get in, you got to get in. You got to get in at some point. Okay. It's an investment. That's an asset. If we're talking about real estate, it's you're buying it and you're holding it. Okay. You're diversifying your cash. You bring in the cash and you need to deploy it and invest it. That's how you make money. It's a very simple, simple, simple idea. And the fundamentals, you know, you need to study the, the, the details of, of how you're going to invest your money. But it's a simple. Make money, deploy money into things that are going to make you money. Like if you buy a house at 700 grand and you think you paid too much and in five years it goes to 600, who gives a fuck? Doesn't matter because in five years you've probably paid it down 50 grand from the rent you took in that wasn't your capital. What was the ROI on your capital that you put in? That's the question. Look at the capital you put in. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer, Nick. And, then, and the thing is, and I know you live by that, is because you said two words for me when I came to you with my um, income property, the one that, like the the, the one that I that had to get into the market. And your 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 response after I said it to you, and I'll explain in a second. But you just said buy it, right? The price was great, and I said, but the renters, you know, are not, you know, they're 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 paying a, a, a like a, a way a less than market value monthly rent. And you said, what's your long-term game? I said, I want to, this is what I want to do to get into the industry. He's like, buy it. But who cares? 25 years from now, you're going to look at that being like, that was a great investment. And it is. So, you know, and that, so just speaking to that, I wanted to give our listeners that example of, you know, just simply you're like, you know, you, they, it's covering the mortgage. It's cover. It's not covering every single thing that I need. But like the reality of it is, is like you said, if it's a long-term game for you, buy it. If you're looking to flip this in two days and it's not worth it, but why would you want to do that? Don't get into this unless you're doing it for the long term, right? Here's a funny story that I'll tell. And I tell this all the time to to people who, who want to listen to me shoot my mouth off. And it goes a little something like this. There was a property I wanted to buy, okay? And I was I would drive I, – I obsess about things. So if I want something, it I don't stop thinking about it until I get it. And I mean – Anything in regards to like money, real estate, whatever. If I have a goal, I obsess over it and that's my focus and I do it until I I get it. And of course, following saying that with our mental health discussion, that's a whole different story. But being honest with everybody who's listening, that's my approach. Does it work? Yes. Is it healthy? I'm not saying that. But I obsess over getting these things. So I was looking at this piece of real estate. I would drive by it every single day after work. So I would work about 12, 13, 14 hours a day. And then I would leave work and I would drive by it and drive by it and drive by it and just think, okay, I was thinking and obsessing like, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to buy this? Okay. Because I already had a a few CMHC secured mortgages. So I knew I was going to have to come up with a 20%. And I'm like, oh, that's a lot of money at the time. It was a lot of money now. So anyways, I would talk to, I had uh, the girl I was dating at the time. She's like, don't do it. Don't buy it. Trust me. Her mother, don't buy it. 
my mom, don't buy it. Everybody around me said, don't buy it. So I bought it. Okay. I went through and I bought it. That property I paid $400,000 for. And that was in 2016, 2015. So what's that? Five, seven years ago? Yep. That property I paid $400,000 for. Okay. I put... $80,000, $81,000 down. That property today is worth $950,000. Okay. So that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. That's a huge. So on that $80,000. Okay. Not even including what the property has, has been paid down. Um, you know, I put 80,000 in and I've dealt, I've made 450. Right. So that's huge. But point of the story is trusted my gut and made it happen. Well, let's talk about making it happen. And I don't know how much you want to get into this, but you said that's a lot of money to go down. It is $80,000, $81,000 on a $400,000 purchase is a lot of money. What did you have to do in order to get the 20%? Can you reveal that? Oh, I had to, I had some money saved up. Not that much. So I had a little bit of money saved up. I think I might have had like 30 grand. And um, this was in the early stages of my store. So I was I was making like 30 grand a year, 40 grand a year, maybe. So not a lot. And um, so I had expenses, obviously. And I had lines of credit because I was really good at talking to the banks and I had good relationships and they knew me and I had good credit because I always paid everything and I was smart and I I learned about my credit. See last episode, people learned about my credit, understood my credit and I was able to get these lines of credit from different banks. So I went to Bank of Montreal, I went to RBC, I went to Scotia. Um, I went to TD and I talked to all the different branch managers who I knew. And I said, I need lines of credit. So I got lines of credit from each of these different institutions. Some of them were like five grand. Some of them were 40 grand. So I was able to take money from my line of credit, use that, couple it with the money I had saved, put it for the down payment. And I bought the house. Was I you know, extended quite a bit. Of course I was, I was making 30 grand a year for God's sake, but I remortgaged the place, obviously, you know, shortly thereafter I was in a, a shorter term mortgage because I knew what I had to do to get it. Um, remortgaged it for a little bit more, paid the lines of credit off Bob's your uncle. Yeah, I think that's it. It is important for our listeners to understand, right? Like, you know, it's not necessarily conventional when you go and you and you're especially as an entrepreneur and you're trying to buy, you know, assets. When you go to different banks, one says no, and you're like, okay, well, I guess I can't buy it. You know, you didn't let that come, you know, come into fruition. You didn't let that be a a, a deciding factor on how to do that. So, actually, I think it's actually interesting that you said a good point, Nick. Is so you remortgage the house. Okay, so talk about the importance of taking out equity in the home and why, or the the property. I don't. You didn't say if it was what it was, but talk about the importance of of, of taking equity out of out of the uh, the investment, and then what how you allocated the funds. I know you paid things off, but 
why is that important? Uh, not just with that property, but with all the properties that you own and the different types of investments that you have. Why is it important to, to understand when it's time, you know, you remortgage every five, three or five years, whatever your, your term is, and then taking that money and reallocating those funds? Wow, it's huge. It's the only way to grow. And again, unless you're coming from super rich family or you've been gifted a million dollars or you you have access to some type of capital, if you're if you're a grassroots entrepreneur like so many of us are, you really need to access all the capital you can again by using the banks and using people who have money. And these people want to invest in people like me, like you, like some of our listeners who are hungry as fuck and they will do anything to succeed. Those are the people, banks, although on the surface they pretend like they don't like those types of people, they love them because they know they always get their money. Always. Private, private investors love these people. I would work 15 jobs to pay back a loan before I let it default. If my idea went tits up. So pull the money out, paid off what I needed to pay off for my lines of credit. And then I took the money, bought more. So I had a little bit extra, bought another one, used my line of credit again, bought another one, bought a multi-unit, bought a building, like just started buying this stuff. And I understood how I, I needed to look on paper and how I had to, what I had to do in order to do it. It wasn't like I was making nothing. I say nothing. I'm not, I don't mean nothing, but I wasn't making enough for a guy who had started to build this portfolio of real estate. But I learned how to, to work it. And I learned how to, to, to buy these and, and, to get the tenants and to sign the leases before the properties closed and all these different little, you know, tips that, that I had learned, I, I knew and I did them. And then when I went to the bank to borrow money, I had the lease that they could use the income for uh, coupled with my income from the store. And these things, you know, I just learned more and learned more and bought more and bought more. And then, you know, it got to a point where we started focusing on, really big stuff and kind of stepped away from the smaller stuff. <clears throat> but it, that's how it started. Interesting. Uh, two things I want to ask you. Let's talk about uh, my, so in order to have that, you have a really interesting mindset for money. Talk a little bit about money mindset. Yes, this is very important. Very important. Listen up people. Having a mindset for money and a money mindset is the key to success. You need to understand the money. Okay? So, if you're somebody, and I texted this to you last night, I said, a rich man invests his money and spends the rest. A poor man spends his money and invests the rest. I love it. Okay? So you need to be focused on the growth. You need to be focused on what you're doing. You need to be focused on investing, focused on buying, buying real estate, focused on your business, focused on your job, your career, whatever. Like I'm not saying you need to go out and be the next Elon Musk or fucking Steve Jobs or whoever. 
Like being an entrepreneur is for somebody or some people, and it's not for some people. And that's fine. But having a money mindset is for everybody. It's not just for the guy who wants to build a business. It's not just for the fucking portfolio manager at fucking RBC. It's for everybody. You need to understand it for your kids, for your family, for everybody around you so that you can help them, help you. You need to help you before you can help them. And people who think, well, you know, I just let my husband manage the money and I don't understand it. And like, I, that's fine. That's fine. And you and I have had this conversation and, and I, I want to manage the money. And, and I, I, you know, I'm sure that you like to manage the money too, yeah. but we both like our wives are smart people. They're very smart people. They understand it just as much as we do, yeah. but it's not like they're just going blind into whatever the hell, you know, we want to scheme up. So understanding money. Okay. Focusing on your goals and then accessing your money to invest is key. No, I love that. It's great insight, great mindset. I'm interested, um, Nick, before I get to the next question, what at what point did you in your, you know, the 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 your organization, your 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 corporation, when did you decide to get out of like the single families, multi-units to scale up? Like how did you know when that was the time? Because you you talked about you, you, the only thing that prompted that question was when you were answering the last question, you mentioned you bought a duplex, you bought a single, you bought this, that, and then you started buying buildings and things like that. So how did you know when it was time to liquidate some assets in order to, you know, put it into um, other, you know, other investments? Well, the entry level for larger projects is greater. Okay. So the entry level, meaning the capital investment to get into these things is a lot more. So instead of talking about tens of thousands, we're talking about hundreds of thousands or a couple million. So you need to have access to this capital to get into the bigger projects. Furthermore, when you're looking at single family homes, the valuations on them is based on like a direct comparison approach. And I know every bank is different. So direct comparison means, okay, they look at your neighbor's house. They look at like another bungalow in the neighborhood, what it sold for. That's the value of your property. Once you get into like five, six, 10, 20, a hundred units, bigger projects, they start to use what's called an income approach. And an income approach is where they take your net income. Okay. So how much you make minus your expenses, your net income and it becomes directly proportional to the value of the building, okay? So the more rent you make, the more the building is worth, okay? So this is where the real estate game really becomes interesting and really starts to get fun because you can, you're able to plug and play different thing. Okay. Well, what if I get the, the, what if I get the rent up here? Okay. What if I, what if I add three more units? What if I put a story on this building? You know, this is a project we're looking at now. What if there, we add a, a, another story? 
and five more units. Then the value goes up because we're getting more rent. Then you got to learn how to navigate with the city, with the township, whoever, wherever you're doing it. You got to understand engineers and architects and drawings and all this other stuff. And that is really when it starts to excite me. And, you know, to, to kind of just circle around to the start of that question, I knew it was the right time when I was able to, to get enough money to, to start playing in some of those deals. And I also knew, okay, because I brought my brother on board who was coming from the development and large corporation um, kind of environment, okay? So I knew I had a partner who, who was very savvy in this. And, you know, where I wasn't strong, he was extremely strong. And, and we were able to complement each other's uh, strengths. And we pulled the trigger and we pulled it in a big fucking way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been going well. Well, let, let, let's, let's unpack. There's so much to unpack here, Nick. We're, hopefully we'll get to all the questions, but if we don't, we'll circle back the next week for sure. Uh, well, when is it a good opportunity or a good idea to bring in a partnership then? Because I don't think we've touched upon that over the last month or so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends who they are. It depends who they are. It depends where you are in, in your growth and what your goals are. Okay. So I have a goal in mind for myself and it's fucking astronomical. Okay. Am I going to get there? Of course I am. Of course I am. There's no question in my mind. Am I going to get there by myself? No. So number one, I've identified that. Okay. I, I cannot get there alone. I cannot get to this goal alone. Okay. So once I've identified that, then, I, okay, now I know I need partners. So who are those partners going to be? They need to be someone I trust, someone who brings value, someone who um, complements my strengths, okay, and I complement theirs. They fill in where I'm weak. I fill in where they're weak, you know, and they, they add value to the project, okay? So I'm not saying bring in one partner for everything, you may have 10 partners for 10 different things, and that's okay. That's okay. A mentor of mine, um, you know, he's a huge advocate for having partners and how it's structured and the way it looks. And he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's an accountant by trade. Um, but he's just, you know, you, you gotta you gotta look at everything as like an individual situation and analyze it. You can't you can't say a blanket statement, partners are good, partners are bad, because I've heard that too. And you know, I, I get it. Of course I get it, but, but it's like, uh, it's very, uh, it's a case by case situation and you got to know who you're partnering with and what they bring to the table. And if the answer is they bring nothing to the table, see ya. Yeah. Next. No, and I said, I think that's a great statement too, right? Like be clear on that. And you know, you and I talked about a few things and, and one of the things that you said in our, in our dealings, when we were chatting about a few things that we didn't end up doing, but you know, it's, you, you got, you said something that I thought really resonated with me. It's like, we have to get very, very clear on what everybody's job is. And that's sitting down, putting all the partners in a room or however you do it. Maybe it's over a beer, or a glass of wine, but really leaning into what everybody's job is. And I think it gets convoluted when people are just like, oh, we're all partners. Talk a little yeah. bit about the importance of knowing your, your role. Fuck, it's so important. Everybody needs a job and that needs to be established because otherwise it's a fucking huggy, kissy love fest where... 
oh, yay, we're going to go into business and we're going to be rich. And, you know, Johnny's going to fucking, okay, John, you set the bank account up and then I'll do, I'll do my thing. And, and, and I'm good at talking. It's like, no, no. Number one, who's the leader? I'm the leader. Okay. This is my project. I'm bringing people in. Number two, why are you in? Okay. Fully you're in because you're very analytical. Okay. You understand, you know, how we're going to grow this. You're very good at management. You understand people. So your job is going to be X, Y, and Z based on these things. Sam, you're coming in because you're an accountant. Okay. You're a genius with numbers. We need that. Great. So right now I've brought in two partners who, if they partnered, I'm, I basically have made myself irrelevant to the deal because I brought in two such strong partners, but I brought the deal. And this is how you build good partnerships. Okay. So yes, I brought Nick in. I brought Sam in. Okay. Now we fucking get it. I know what I'm doing. Both of these guys know what they're doing and you unleash ahead and you attack the project. And you also be very strategic about timelines. Okay, January 1st, 2020. This is where we're going to be. If we're not there, why aren't we there? We're having a serious fucking discussion on why we're not there. If we are there, congratulations. Continue pushing. Okay? So, you know, one thing I see all the time is people are very, very, very... um, Everybody wants to pat everybody on the back all the time, okay? And say, great job. And that's good. That's good, okay? I'm not saying anything wrong about it. But but we hesitate. We hesitate to have the difficult conversations in business like, okay, well, we wanted to be at a million dollars by January 1st, 2020, and we're at 850. Why? Why aren't we there? Or we're at 999,999.99 cents. Why didn't we hit the million? That is important because it's not good enough to not be there if that was our goal. And and if you're very realistic with your goals, okay, you're very realistic and you understand them and you don't make it, then a serious fucking conversation needs to be had as to why and how you're not going to let it happen again. And I think it shows that the accountability, right? Like if my department is, you know, managing people and we have a culture problem, then it comes to me and it, and it doesn't get lost in the, you know, it doesn't get convoluted. It doesn't get lost in the, in the, in the, you know, the guise of running a day-to-day business. So I think it's very important, like you said, is to making sure that everybody understands their role and the expectations of the organize or the, uh, of the partnership moving forward. Doesn't mean you can't be buddies either. No, of course not. Like yeah. you, but you just need to have these conversations. Like yeah. I would nail you in two seconds as you would me. Yeah. You know, if I'm showing up to late every day because I'm out partying drunk, hungover, you are going to be all over me. I know that for a fact. I'm not saying I go out and get drunk and party all the time anymore. I used to, but you are going to say, look, this is not working. Yeah. You are, do you want to be a part of this or not? So I understand that your partners aren't there to, to, to stroke your ego and, and tell you how good of a job you're doing. They're, they're there to keep you accountable as well. And, and you are to them and you owe it to them to do that. And if you aren't, and you aren't having those serious conversations with them, then you are actually doing the 
opposite of what a good friend would do. Yeah. And I think that, that speaks to that is, you know, the best friends out there are the ones that if you're partnered with them or, or you have, you know, you run into a partnership where you can have that very serious conversation, but in the same breath or after the, it's like, are we done? We got it. Everyone clear. Yep. How's the wife? How's yeah. the kids? How's the husband? Like, you know what I mean? Where you're, you're, you're actually taking the business out of it because you recognize it's rooted in, in, in friendship. If it is, sometimes partnerships aren't. They're just strictly strategic and business. Like, and that's, that's business. But I think, like you said, I think it's important to, you have that very real. And you and I, we have a, a good rapport where, you know, we can give each other the, uh, hold each other accountable. And in the same breath, know that our friendship is foundational in the sense that, you know, it's, we've got a lot of the same ideologies and views and, and goals and, and, and things like that. So we can talk about business and then flip it over to how's the family, how's everything going, you know? And I think that's important to, to, to talk about. All right. Next question here. What, uh, what are the pros and cons of open ended and closed ended loans, fixed rate versus variable rate, things like that. Hey, beauty. So yeah, the re the remortgaging thing that I was talking about earlier, where I used my lines of credit, used my credit cards to, as down payments, okay? So pro of an open-ended mortgage, you're able to pay it off anytime, you're able to remortgage anytime, you're able to do anything involving changing that mortgage free of charge. I say free of charge, there's always charges, but there's no huge penalty associated with breaking that uh, term, okay? So open-ended, you can pay it off, uh, you're able to, to renegotiate a better rate, you're able to pull money out and remortgage and all that kind of fun stuff. If you had to get into it to, um, you know, accomplish some type of a goal, closed ended loans, closed ended mortgages. So basically, you know, it's a term a five year fixed. Everybody's heard that five year fixed, um, mortgage. So typically, Okay, now things change and things are different, but typically the five-year fixed term in Canada is based directly on the 10-year U.S. bond yield. So as that goes up, interest rates go up in Canada. That changes, obviously, different factors play into it. But that being said, five-year fixed loans, typically, okay, we're in crazy times, but typically you can get the best rate at a five-year fixed, the lowest rate, okay? So... That's all fine and dandy. So if you if you are buying a single family home for you and your family and you want to have peace of mind that your mortgage isn't going to change, your cost isn't going to change, you know five-year fixed, it's going to stay the same for five years and that's all fine and dandy and great. If you bought a rental property and you needed to use a whole bunch of crazy money to get it, but you know it's you're going to do X, Y, and Z to it, and it's going to appreciate, and you need to remortgage it to get that money out and pay ship back, then open-ended is fine. Now, you can still do that with a closed mortgage, closed, but you're going to pay. So there's a cost associated with breaking a mortgage, and it's dependent on like three months interest or uh, – you know, an interest rate differential calculation that, you know, any mortgage agent or your bank manager can help you with. So cons, closed closed uh, mortgage. If you pay it off, there's a huge cost. Open, there's not. Open-ended uh, pros, you can pay off stuff that you might have used to get the mortgage, uh, but it's more expensive money because the bank's not guaranteed to get a return over X period. Um, variable rate, again, 
you'll play in the market. So if you understand the market, you understand where you're going. Variable rate can be good. You can win or you can lose. Uh, but again, if you're somebody who really likes to have stability in your payments and you don't want to worry about it too, too much, then, uh, you know, fixed rate is typically the way to go. And usually it's not that much more expensive than, uh, than a variable. Uh, that's great insight, Nick. So we've had a really far reaching and uh, deep dive conversation today. And I know our listeners are, are smarter for it. I know I am. And, uh, and so we're really grateful for that. So any parting shots before we wrap things up for another week? Listen to this, people. This is important, okay? It doesn't matter what you want to do in your life. If you want to be super successful in business, if you want to be super in, is successful in your marriage, if you want to be super successful in whatever the fuck it is that you want to do, consistency, quality, consistency, okay? So you need to show the fuck up all the time. Every day you need to show up. You got to bring the same thing every day, as hard as that may be, because, you know, it's harder to show up and it's, I would say, you know, like we asked this question, 78 to 80% of the time when you wake up, you might not feel like doing it, but you do it anyways, because you understand that that is crucial to the success of your goal. So again, if your goal is, I want to fucking have $500 million or your goal is, I want to take a vacation 10 times a year. You need to be consistent in whatever it is that you need to execute to achieve that goal. And if you're not, then get the fuck out of here. I'm Nick Foley. He's Nick Gilmore. This is Cash Rules.